The military chaplain service is the religious experiment of the world. It's the only place where clergy, religious leaders of all faith, are coming under the same roof, oftentimes working behind the same pulpit, having the same boss, working with the same people, and trying to vie for the same jobs and promotions. And when it works, it is a rich deep tapestry. Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast found at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry, and coming to you from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. What you just heard was a clip from an interview with former United States Air Force Chaplain Terry Erickson which was conducted for the Mary Baker Eddy Library Oral History Project. It sets the stage for a discussion with author and scholar Dr. Ronit Stahl for a three-part series titled A Great Religious Experiment, Military Chaplaincy. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars, and I'm very much looking forward to sharing with you these three episodes that explore the quest for religious pluralism over the last century in United States military chaplaincy. We'll be posting an episode each week during the first three weeks of November. In part one of A Great Religious Experiment, Military Chaplaincy, we focus on the mobilization of the chaplaincy during World War I. In part two, we explore the massive expansion of the chaplain corps during the Second World War and examine how the chaplaincy responded to moral tensions around the Vietnam War. In part three, we look at the experience of women in military chaplaincy and discuss the state of the chaplaincy today. So let's begin with part one of a great religious experiment, military chaplaincy. I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Ronit Stahl to the podcast for a discussion on the issues involved with the pursuit of pluralism in United States military ministry. Hello, Ronit. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm just going to speak a little bit about you for our listeners. Ronit is the author of Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America. And this was published by Harvard University Press in 2017. She is Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley, and once upon a time, she was a research fellow here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. That was in 2012. And during her fellowship, she explored the involvement of the Christian Science Church in the chaplain service of the United States Armed Forces. So it's really great to have you back here, Ronit, and to see that um, your research here contributed to the publication of this extraordinary book, uh, that embraces so much uh, meaningful and fascinating history about both the chaplain service in the United States Armed Forces, but also about how that relates to the larger question of just American history over the course of the last hundred years. So congratulations on your book. Well, thank you. So how did you get involved in this subject? What, what brought you to exploring this arena of the military ministry and issues involved with pluralism in military chaplaincy? 
It was a, a bit of a winding path to the chaplaincy itself. Um, mm. I started by a, a deep interest in the connection between religion and the state in America. I felt that so much is attributed to the separation of church and state in the United States. And of course, that's part of the First Amendment. And yet I was looking around me and seeing so many connections between religion and government and so many people thinking you know, religion matters, how the government works matters. So given that, I wanted to find a way to think about what happens when religion and state are engaging with one another intentionally, what happens in that space. And so I wanted to look less for, you know, a single court case or one moment of conflict, but really sustained engagement. Mm. And as I was considering where that might be, I started thinking about chaplains more broadly. We see chaplains in the United States, in hospitals, in prisons, in corporations, um, but especially in the military. And once I started on the military, it became very clear that it was certainly the space of the most sustained engagement, but also just fascinating. And there were deep archival sources and other materials available to study it in depth. And off I went. Oh, that's great. So how long a journey was it from beginning to getting your book published? It was about a 10-year process. Mm -hmm. So over time, you know, some periods were more intensively about research, some were more about writing and revising, but really a decade of thinking deeply and broadly about the chaplaincy. And one of my real commitments, because I was so interested in how this space changed over time was really keeping in view all the different religious groups that were engaging, some of whom were sponsoring and endorsing chaplains, some of whom wanted to but needed to get in, some of whom were questioning what it meant to be part of this space. But especially as I got into the letters and the correspondence in the National Archives, it became very clear to me that the American public and citizens really saw the chaplaincy, especially in times of war, in World War I and World War II, when so many families had uh, members of their family going off to war, that People were writing in. They cared about what religion looked like in this space. They cared that they were represented, that their family members could participate in their own religious lives in the armed forces. And that really amplified my sense that it was important to look at this space carefully. Mm. So just as a matter of clarity, would you state that 1917 represented when chaplaincy was officially established in the United States Armed Forces? Is that the date of origin? Well, it's not the date of origin per se. There were chaplains during the American Revolution. There were chaplains during the Civil War, the Spanish-American War. But in those periods, it was much more of an ad hoc operation. And it's really in the early 20th century that the chaplaincy as an organization develops and, and really starts to figure out what it is, what the standards are for chaplains, who oversees it. And it's it's really in the course of World War One that the organization that we understand the chaplaincy to be today starts. And so I do think it's an origin story in that sense of the modern chaplaincy, World mm -hmm. War One, 
and the U.S. entrance into it is is a watershed moment. Well, it's interesting for us here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library because 1917 is the moment of origin for Christian science participation in the United States military chaplaincy. So um, this particular quote called out to me from your book, and I'd just like to share it and then let you respond. Um, You write, quote, a century ago, Congress responded to lobbying pressure from several minority faith groups and opened the chaplaincy to Christian scientists, the Eastern Orthodox, Jews, and Mormons. The chaplaincy evolved from a rickety outfit into a sturdy organization more than 10 times the size of its 1917 predecessor. The pluralistic ethos of the chaplain corps, built intentionally, if imperfectly, since World War I, is a choice inevitably beset with tension, unquote. That obviously speaks to the Christian science story, but to this much larger story as well. And I'd, I'd love for you to just speak a bit about that moment when these minority faith groups were petitioning to become part of the chaplaincy when it was getting more organized as an apparatus of the military, and then what it spawned in in the way of growth, but also tension. So when the U.S. entered the war in April of 1917, the chaplaincy was very small and composed of about eight mainline Protestant groups and Catholic chaplains. So there was some very limited religious diversity, but other faith groups, many of whom were sending their sons, brothers, fathers to war, Mm. um, and were also becoming more publicly participatory in American society, wanted to be part of this. They wanted both for their members who were going to war to have access to religious services, but also this was an opportunity to be represented and recognized. And I think the recognition is really important. At the same time, the military and especially the War Department was a little bit uncertain. You know, they're getting these requests and they're they're getting lobbying sometimes through congressional representatives, but also a lot of letters mm. asking for the possibility of participation. And one thing they're not sure about is whether the War Department itself and the Navy was a little behind. I would say they, the War Department is larger. It has more soldiers there. There and 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 the War Department is also getting information from the field from other chaplains saying, "We need help. Like, what do you do with you know Christian scientists or Mormons or mm-hmm. Jews or these groups that because of the way the World War One Army was organized and people tended to serve." with other people from their home communities. You could identify clusters of religious groups. And so the existing chaplains were also in need of of more assistance. But for the War Department, one of the big questions was whether they could, on their own authority, just start appointing other chaplains from these groups that had not been represented, or whether they needed congressional authorization. Mm. And so that's really what generates this this legislation in October of 1917, so six months after the U.S. had entered the war. And that legislation is what was called the Chaplains at Large Bill, which is what formally opens the chaplaincy to these uh, minority faith groups and says, you can, in fact, appoint Christian scientists, Mormons, Jews, and at least technically the Eastern Orthodox, though there were no Eastern Orthodox chaplains in World War I. So 
it is really a, a critical moment because this is what gives the statutory authority. This is what puts the official acceptance on this is a space that can be broader than what it was. But at the same time, there's no plan for implementation per se, other than you now have the authority to appoint these other chaplains. So the execution and the interpretation of what that means really does spawn for the really the rest of the century. How do we think about religious diversity as a fact? We know that Americans come from diverse religious backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And what do we do? do with that once we have we start appointing chaplains from these different faiths what does that look like how do we make sure everyone can work together and that is really the challenge of the US military chaplaincy it was interesting in your book to also get a glimpse into beyond the the statutory implications and the legal implications that at its beginning, there there was a kind of pluralistic vision or ideal for it, at least with the first chaplain general of military chaplaincy in World War I, a fellow named Charles Brent. And I'll just read this quote and let you expound upon it. And this is from your book, quote, Charles Brent, chaplain general of the American Expeditionary Forces in World War I, believed that while the varieties of religious faith are great, the purpose is one. End of quote. Tell us a little bit about that sort of spiritual vision, if you will, for the chaplain's corps at its origins with the, the head of the, the chaplaincy, Charles Brent. In many ways, the army got lucky that as sort of an accident of history, oh. General John Pershing, who was the commanding general of the American Expeditionary Forces, had a long-standing relationship with uh, then Bishop Brent. Um, he was an Episcopalian bishop, mm-hmm. and he was in France. and And for him, as a general, was just seeing a ton of really religious disorganization. Because also, what was happening in World War One was, in addition to official military chaplains, religious groups were sending what they called war workers over to France to serve the troops. And as you might imagine, this was a bit chaotic and Mm -hmm. very annoying for a general, right? So he wants organization. And so he calls in Brent, who um, had been in the Philippines as the missionary bishop and uh, had a sense globally. He understood how the British and Canadian militaries and their chaplaincies worked. So he was in many ways a wise, if somewhat nepotistic, choice When he comes into this space, his sensibility, his worldview about religion is that it's fine that there are lots of denominations, that they are all different pathways to God. And he was not particularly invested in the denominational divisions that were bubbling up and um, very intense in many spaces Mm -hmm. um, at this time. And there were countervailing movements. The YMCA, he really relied on, that was that was also doing some work on the ground to bring at least Christians together. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Brent, he really saw the chaplaincy as an opportunity to devise a space and a structure. And he actually thought that there shouldn't be one, sort of what becomes the chief of chaplains. Um, he, he doesn't win this battle, but mm. he thought you want actually a trio of chaplains at the top, representing different types of faiths, which for him meant what he called a liturgical 
kind of high Protestant like an Episcopalian, a congregational Protestant like a Baptist and a Catholic. Mm. But he he's he thought that could be expanded, but that you know you you didn't actually want a single person invested with all the authority and power because you wanted those conversations across religious backgrounds. At the organizational level, what he was able to do was to create structures that always put chaplains together, that that never said one type of chaplain is better than the other. And he really helped infuse the chaplaincy with the idea and the commitment that was there in the manuals. The policy level already existed that a chaplain is there to serve everyone. Mm -hmm. But what he did was say... Everyone really means everyone and all their different beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. You don't get to impose your beliefs on someone else. You're there to support their religious needs, their religious rituals. So your job is to find a way to do that. And in order to do that best, we need diversity within the ranks of the chaplaincy so that you can learn from one another. So that ecumenical spirit that he had for the chaplaincy To what extent did it actually come about? How perfect was it um, and how imperfect was it in its implementation in the United States Armed Forces? It's a great question because I think it's really important, especially with people, you know, in these powerful positions to always think about what they say versus what they do or how their visions were implemented. And it was absolutely an imperfect implementation First of all, in an effort to try and not be too divisive, basically everyone who was Christian but not Catholic was Protestant in the military's worldview. And so the military both recognized that there were different uh, denominations and, and faith groups amidst that, but it made anyone labeled a Protestant chaplain responsible for what it called at the times general Protestant worship. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there's no single general Protestant worship service. That's sort of a made-up idea. But that had some some teeth in the military. And so there was a lot of concern. We understand what it might mean for a Baptist or a Methodist to do this, but what does it mean for a Christian scientist or mm-hmm. a Mormon to do this? And, and for the Christian scientists and Mormons, what does it mean to, to do this? work. And and there was some skepticism from other chaplains, from really other officers. And yet at the same time, there was a sense that, wait a second, when people are actually here, we can make it work. Mm -hmm. And I think that pragmatism really matters because ultimately, especially during the times of war, there is a sense that, well, we've got to get it done. This is what we've got. We're going to make it work. Mm And so there's always that tension between the ideal and the real, but one thing the military has going for it is more of a sense of a a pragmatic approach, like let's figure this out, Mm -hmm. as well as a hierarchy that is going to say, and now you must figure it out. I have to say, as a researcher, when I was in the archives, I was, I was skeptical, especially around World War I in the 1920s, which is a time that if you look at the rest of American society, is riven with religious friction and difference and an inability often to handle that. And so I was skeptical. I was, I was reading, you know, materials, but I was like, is this, is this for real? But one thing that happened that over the course of, you know, many archives, so many different religious archives as well as military archives, was there was a consistency to it. And it wasn't in spaces that were forced, right? It wasn't simply, oh, in the report where you might have to 
make a claim that you were like a really ecumenical chaplain. It was in letters and diaries and, you know, other forms of personal correspondence. And these chaplains would come back, especially those who were in France, and just extol what this ecumenical space was like. And that, you know, several would talk about that this sort of possibility that had only been sort of this imaginative vision in their experience in the United States had become real in France during the war, that it was in fact possible to work together and find ways to serve all soldiers. And so it's not to say that everyone's experience was great. It's not to say that they had worked out how to do this perfectly, but rather that it seeded the idea that it was actually possible. And I think that's really important. Thank you for listening to part one of A Great Religious Experiment, Military Chaplaincy. Our guest was Dr. Ronit Stahl, author of Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America. We hope you'll join us for part two. Here are a couple of clips from it that preview our discussion on military chaplaincy in World War II and during the Vietnam War. It's World War II that also really attracts the attention of even more religious groups and even more people who want to be part of the chaplaincy who hadn't been. Suddenly there are Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, other Orthodox clergy who want to be part of the chaplaincy. There are Buddhists who are interested in this space. There are women. Who were they serving in Vietnam? As a chaplain, did they serve the state? Did they serve God? Did they serve soldiers? I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2018.